This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book at the Wednesday dinner hour service and we have now come over from the Old Testament to contemplate some of the teaching of the New. As we have said earlier, it is an easy way of saying Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfilment. But we were looking last week at the, at the fact that although fulfilment must be, it doesn't go in a sort of mechanical movement. There's a tremendous sort of underground and zigzag and opposition because when God created man and put him on the earth, man brought with him the little word if. It wasn't spelled I-F, but it means the same thing. Contingency came in and God said, if you do this, I will do that. And that was true of Adam, it was true under the law of Moses, and so there comes a long period of waiting. But ultimately, the scripture has recorded for our encouragement that then shall the Son be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. And if we don't understand the torturous way in which things have had to go even now, we don't need to apologise for God. We say, well, we don't know everything, even in the chapter of the open book. Isn't that marvellous? We don't know everything, but one day he's given us an assurance. We shall know even as we are known. And then we shall say, in a sense we cannot say, say now, he hath done all things well. Well now, the first thing that we meet in the New Testament, after the genealogy of Christ, is the fact that he had a forerunner. And we were mentioning that last time. The forerunner indicates a person of great consequence. A king was to be born, and a forerunner was sent. And then there was that if coming in. If you will receive the king and the kingdom, then this is Elijah that was for to come. But inasmuch as you are not receiving it, Elijah is yet to come in the future. We were looking at that last time. Well, I felt that there wouldn't be a very great number possibly here today, and I'll inflict upon you a little bit of an attempt to do a bit of reckoning. Uh, if you don't think it's very much importance, well, that's for your decision. But I think there's this about it. We may come to a meeting and have our hearts stirred with some wonderful glimpse of the grace of God, but occasionally it does us good to realise that our faith is resting upon time and place. That if it could be absolutely proved that our Saviour was never born in Bethlehem. We'd have no Saviour. Because he must be if he's our Saviour. And if it could be proved that he didn't come in the fullness of time that God said he did, then we're still without a Saviour. So there is some point at occasionally to bring ourselves back from the high glories down <coughs> to solid rock and earth. And I'm going to do that today, just in our few minutes. Not far from this chapel, just down by the Bank of England and the Mansion House, there's a big building that was held up for a period while excavations went on and a temple, a Mithraic temple, was unearthed and taken away and rebuilt. And that has a little connection with the fact that we've had just a remembrance of our Saviour's birth in December the 25th. Because there is no indication in the scripture that our Saviour was born in December 25th, and even Palestine has such terrible weather at this time of year that shepherds don't keep their flocks. And although the Roman power was a very strong power, they were wise. They didn't stir up trouble if they could help it. 
And no man in his senses, like Caesar Augustus, would send out a decree that all the world should be taxed in midwinter. And then there's another thing. If they came to Bethlehem to register there, <coughs> Bethlehem is spoken of in the Old Testament and in the New as such a little place, though there are little among the thousands of Judah. So how was it there was such a crowd of people that they couldn't even find one solitary room for a woman who was in the state of Mary? Would you say, have you got the answer? Oh, yes. But it needs a little bit of careful search and building up. So will you be prepared just for that and not feel that you've been wasting your time to get some one more peg down on solid earth so that our faith is resting upon something that is historic and builds up and not a wonderful dream of poetry which may pass, of course, as all dreams do. Well, now, the first thing for us to, to remember is this. That the forerunner is mentioned in uh, Matthew, and in the third chapter it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. <coughs> and if you're at all acquainted with rabbinical literature and um, the methods of the old Jewish writers, they were not too concerned about getting things meticulously right. They didn't think, didn't bother about whether they put things in their right order or not, as we should expect. You find a different order in one gospel from another, but that doesn't worry them. As long as they get their point in, that's the thing. So Matthew alters the order of the temptation to get his point in, and he puts the temptation of the kingdom last. Whereas Luke, who says, I'm writing to put in order everything, he puts it meticulously right, and the, the uh, temptation of the kingdom is in the middle. So you've got to have your mind a little bit open to that sort of thing. So Matthew merely says, in those days, that leaves it. But now look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. This beats 1066 William the Conqueror, Olive. Because 1066 is the single date. But if I were to give you, say, four dates, April the 25th, March the 7th, August the 10th, December the 11th, and say now between those dates, this particular thing happened. Molly, you've got it, haven't you? It's like, it's not really trigonometry, there's four of them. You see? Well, that's what God has done in the Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's one point. Well, that's good enough, we could go back to that, you see. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, was he? He was. Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, he was. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. And then, adding to that, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, and there were two of them, extraordinary faction, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Look at the date. You see, how it owned itself to be exposed as being untrue, isn't it? And every one of them fit. They were all in their place. Well, now, before we deal with the... the uh, one that this forerunner came to announce, the king and his work, I just want to establish one more thing. <clears throat> I mentioned just now the Mithraic religion that had left its mark up there near the Bank of England. Well, in the beginning, when the church was standing faithful, they suffered a great deal because they would not conform to the pagan ideas of their neighbours. But as time went on, they gradually lowered their standard and a 5th century writer tells us that earlier than he, of course, they agreed 
in order to avoid clashes and misunderstandings and persecutions, that the high day of the Mithraic religion, which was December the 25th, when the sun entered its winter solstice and was called the nativity, notice this, the nativity of the S-U-N, the nativity of the sun, they would agree that they would remember the birth of Christ at the same time, their festivities would not jar upon one another, and they'd all live happily ever afterwards, you know, that idea. So that's the only reason why we do December the 25th. Well, we say, well, we are glad to meet one another and have a happy time and we're to remember our Saviour was born at some time or another. But that is not the date that the Scripture justifies it in any sense. Well, it might be useful for us to get a little bit nearer to the date, if it's possible. Would you like to try just for the next few minutes? Let's try, shall we? And the way in which we may do it is this. First of all, I go back, and I don't ask you to turn to this passage because I'm only going to read a, a word or two. It says in the uh, first of Chronicles, chapter 24, um, now these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. The sons of Aaron were Nadab and Abihu and the Eliezer and Ethabah and so on. And then it tells you that these were divided up into 24 courses of priests. And in the verse 10 of this chapter, the seventh is to Hakos, and the eighth is to Abijah. They don't sound the J as I have, Abijah. Now, we are told in the Gospel according to Luke, if you'll turn to the first chapter, that the priest who was ministering in the temple was of the order or the course of Abijah. Now, look at Luke chapter 1. Verse 5, there was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah. There we have. And it says in verse 8, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. Your attention is drawn to it twice. Now, the course of Abiah comes number 8 in the order. And we are indebted to a, a fairly detailed account by Josephus that these 24 courses, they went from Sabbath to Sabbath. Each priest ministered that week. And the first course started at Passover. But inasmuch as there were multitudes to minister to at Passover and at Pentecost and at the Feast of Tabernacles and the Atonement, all the 24 courses were engaged then, quite irrespective of their order. Then, whoever was in the next order took over, so a week after Passover, the course of Abiah saw this priest in the temple, and then the promise was made of an angel, by an angel to him that he should have a son, and call his name John, and he should go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. You see? So we've got to start. Somewhere about, say, the second week in April, about the second week in April, this promise was made. Well then, he had to wait a bit, and by the time he got back, it was getting into the month of May, we, had tight, we said when his work was all finished and over, he went back home. And then nine months afterwards, John the Baptist was born. And that brings us up the, the, the years, uh, the period, you see, and eventually... By the time we piece all this together and discover, as you will, by reading the uh, the record, that um, our Saviour 
was six months younger than John the Baptist. You see where we're getting zigzagging about. We go up till we get somewhere in the month of October. We add nine months to that to bring us round. And then we take six months off. It, it, it's a bit that I shall fall down over with all my reckoning, I know. But you do it on a piece of paper and you get as near to the period when the Feast of Tabernacles take place. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles comes in the seventh month of Israel's year, the last feast of the whole. It's the time when peace will be, not on earth, but it will be visualized. You see, at the Feast of Tabernacles, they all sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, no one making them afraid. And even in this city, or in this, this town, if you went down the East End, Whitechapel and Orgut direction, or any place where there's a Jewish colony, just about that time of the year, in the autumn, you would see them building a little booth in their garden or on the part of the roof of their outhouse and sitting there just saying to themselves, one day this is going to be real. Now, don't you see, if, that, if you work it like that and you get right back to that period of time, our Saviour was born when peace on earth and goodwill to men was just the thing being illustrated. But of course it needed more than a sitting under a booth to bring it about. As someone has put it, there's something that comes before that word of the angel. Something comes a little before the word peace on earth, goodwill to men, and that is a saviour, which is Christ the Lord. You'll not get peace on earth by getting goodwill among men. You'll, you'll, you'll spend all your strength for all to be disappointed tremendously. But if once men have accepted the saviour, who is the prince of peace, then the whole thing comes, are we going to say, automatically. So I felt that I would take this opportunity of suggesting to you that even though we rejoice with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, reckoning ourselves to be translated out of the darkness into the kingdom of God's Son and so on, and all the marvellous blessings that come to us by the gospel of his grace, never let us forget that if it doesn't rest upon fact, it's not anything worth bothering at all, and we're just following a will of the wisp. I'm always so glad, although we don't recite a creed in this chapel, I'm always so glad that those who frame the creed were bold enough and true enough to slip into it, suffered under Pontius Pilate. They pledged themselves that it was an historic faith, and if that's so, then, of course, we can build. So I ask you to accept this as another contribution to our study, a small one, perhaps a peculiar one, and the involving a good deal of research to get it all dug out. But if you will take the hint, the, um, the 24 courses, of course, duplicated. There were 48 in the year. They had two shifts. Then there were the three great festivals, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, that accounted for another two or three, and then, you remember the Jewish year had 51 days in it, and sometimes 52, because they only had 30 days to a month. No Jew ever had to say, let me see, 30 days at September, April, June, and then, no, 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 30 days to a month, and so it slipped through the year until at last they put another month in. That upsets your calculations a wee bit. But I think you'll see near enough the fact that these pieces are put in, the course of a buyer, the fact that it was 
Uh, after he went home, nine months after that, the birth of John the Baptist, Mary went to her cousin's house and stayed there during that period to get a little comfort for herself. She came back six months afterwards. Her child was born, and you get it there roughly about the day of the tabernacles. Well, that solves a problem. Why it was that um, they could be caught that all the world should be called to be taxed. Well, that's all right in early autumn. Easy travelling. It wasn't an extraordinary thing to go across country. But, of course, if the if it coincided, if the Roman the taxation coincided with the Feast of Tabernacles, then you get the crowd. You remember, it says in the Acts of the Apostles at Pentecost, there were Jews out of every nation under heaven attending Pentecost. And they had to make preparations for their accommodation. And so, instead of it being one of those things that nobody can explain, or perhaps you better not be too particular, it's all explainable, and it all fits. And we have a faith that we have no need to apologise for, but we could present it to people as something solid of basis. And then, ultimately, there's something better. Whatever the date of the year might be, whatever fast or feast it fulfills, there's another word said in the Epistle to the Galatians, which is of, of extreme importance, that in the fullness of time, now that's the date, friends, in God's calendar, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, that was fulfilling Genesis 3.15, cutting out Adam completely, and all the entail that Adam brought into the world, made of a woman, made under the law, that brings the Jew in who is condemned of the law, that we might be given the adoption of sons, redeemed from our bondage, and set free. Well, that's where we've started, friends. We have trusted him. We have been set free. And although we are still in this wilderness of a world, we have a blessed hope. And the scripture says to us that having received this gift of grace, we should live looking for that blessed hope. The blessed hope of the first case was the coming of Christ to the manger. The blessed hope before you and me is the coming of Christ in power and great glory. He came and was crowned with thorns. He's coming with many diadems. So lift up your hearts. Wait patiently for him. And if you can't explain all the problems, say you're not the only one. There was one wiser than you, Job, and another one, Ecclesiastes, who faced them and were baffled in many cases. But you can come out on the top at last with Job and say, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And at the last he shall stand upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. If you can say those words, you'll have something to support and sustain you through 1962.